Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy, Ben White. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Then episode 28 of the Lifetime of NASCAR, 28 is a number that's very special to people throughout the sport. There's been so many people uh, that, that used that number and had so much success. In all honesty, um, we've talked about the number three. I might vote 28 as the, the most successful number outside of like 43 in the sports history, just in terms of if you look at the lineup of people who drove it, um, it, it's just, it's staggering. And we could probably have a three-part podcast about everybody who's driven that car. But before we talk about the people who drove the number 28, I think we got to go back in time and discuss one of the biggest reasons the number 28 became famous, and it was because of the car owner who helped get that car in victory lane so many times in the late 80s and the early the mid-90s, uh, and that's Robert Yates. And Robert Yates is a really special guy in this sport, Hall of Fame crew chief, engine builder, just a team owner, a visionary in every sense of the word. Uh, ben, you spent you know quite a bit of years covering races that Robert Yates was a, a part of. Um, what are some some things that stand out to you, and and what do you remember most about Robert Yates? Oh man, I I tell you what, Aaron, Robert was such a neat guy, and you know we lost him a few years ago uh, to cancer, and of course he knew that he was going to go into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. He was there to be. When the announcement was made that he was going in, unfortunately, he did not uh, live long enough to see the induction. Uh, you know, if you think back, Dale Jurett wrote, wrote uh, or actually uh, uh, read a letter that he had written, Robert had written, because he knew he was not going to make it that long, which was very touching that Dale, Dale Jurett did that. But, uh, yeah, my, my vivid memories of Robert, uh, you know, and I say this lovingly, you know, we wrote a book together. Uh, back in the late 90s. And uh, and the one thing I loved about Robert is if you ask him a simple question, you know, how is the car going to run today? 24 minutes later, he was still be <laughs> trying to answer that question because he, you know, he was, he loved to talk. Yeah. And uh, which is a rarity and, among people we interview in NASCAR. Right. <laughs> He just, I loved him so much because he, he, he could just tell all kinds of stories. I mean, you know, writing that book was a great honor and he told me some really cool things uh, about himself and about his family. Yeah. And he was a, a one of many children. Uh, his dad was a minister and uh, of course, you know, growing up there in Charlotte and he he and his brother, his twin brother, Richard, he said one of the cool things they did when they were growing up is that they would hold a trash can lid in one hand and shoot BB guns at, at each other with the other hand. I thought, good Lord, I mean, you know, your, your poor mother. I mean, you know, all the stuff that you guys would do, you know, to, you know, for entertainment. And, you know, oh gosh, I mean, we could spend eight hours just talking about Robert. But as far as his uh, building engines, the way that all started was uh, he was working for a forklift company 
uh, going, I believe, in Statesville, and somebody told him, hey, there's a company called Holman Moody in Charlotte that builds race engines for NASCAR, and they're paying a little bit more than we are. I think it's like two and a quarter an hour or some really low number. And he said, hey, great, I'm just going to go over there and see if I can put in an application. He really didn't know a huge amount about NASCAR. I mean, he did and didn't. You know, he had been down to Daytona and seen some some races down there, and one of his heroes was Junior Johnson. But he and some buddies, he told me one time, went, just for the heck of it, they all piled in a car and drove down to Daytona to watch uh, one of the, I think it was a Firecracker 400. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy, Ben White. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Ben, episode 28 of A Lifetime in NASCAR. 28 is a number that's very special to people throughout the sport. There's been so many people um, that, that use that number and had so much success. In all honesty, um, we've talked about the number three. I might vote 28 as the, the most successful number outside of like 43, and the sports history, just in terms of if you look at the lineup of people who drove it, um, it, it's just it's staggering. And we could probably have a three part podcast about everybody who's driven that car. But before we talk about the people who drove the number 28, I think we got to go back in time and discuss one of the biggest reasons the number 28 became famous. And it was because of the car owner who helped get that car in victory lane so many times in the late eighties and the early, the mid nineties. Uh, and that's Robert Yates and Robert Yates is a really special guy in this sport, hall of fame, crew chief, engine builder, just a team owner, a visionary in every sense of the word. Uh, Ben, you spent, you know, quite a bit of years covering races that Robert Yates was a, a part of. Um, what are some, some things that stand out to you and, and what do you remember most about Robert Yates? Oh, man, I'll I tell you what, Aaron, Robert was such a neat guy. And, you know, we lost him a few years ago uh, to cancer. And, of course, he knew that he was going to go into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. He was there to be when the announcement was made that he was going in. Unfortunately, he did not uh, live long enough to see the induction. Uh, you know, if you think back, Dale Jurett wrote, wrote uh, or actually uh uh, read a letter that he had written, Robert had written, because he knew he was not going to make it that long, which was very touching that Dale, Dale Jarrett did that. But, uh, yeah, my my vivid memories of Robert, uh, you know, and I say this lovingly, you know, we wrote a book together uh, back in the late 90s. And, uh, and the one thing I loved about Robert is if you ask him a simple question, you know, how is the car going to run today? 24 minutes later he was still being <laughs> trying to answer that question because he you know he was he loved to talk yeah and uh which is a rarity and, among people we interview in nascar right <laughs> you know, he just i loved him so much because he 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 could just tell all kinds of stories i mean you know writing that book was a great honor and he told me some really cool things uh, about himself and about his family. Yeah. And he was a, a one of many children. Uh, his dad was a minister. And, uh, of course, you know, growing up there in Charlotte. And he, he and his brother, his twin brother, Richard, he said one of the cool things they did when they were growing up is that they would hold a trash can lid in one hand and shoot BB guns at, at each other with the other hand. I thought, good Lord, I mean, you know, your, your poor mother. I mean, you know, all the stuff that you guys would do, you know, to, you know, for entertainment. And, you know, oh gosh, I mean, we could spend eight hours just talking about Robert. But as far as, his uh, building engines, the way that all started was uh, he was working for a forklift company uh, going, I believe, in Statesville. And somebody told him, hey, there's a company called Holman Moody 
in Charlotte that builds race engines for NASCAR, and they're paying a little bit more than we are. I think it's like two and a quarter an hour or some really low number. And he said, hey, great, I'm just going to go over there and see if I can put in an application. He really didn't know a huge amount about NASCAR. I mean, he did and didn't. You know, he had been down to Daytona and seen some some races down there, and one of his heroes was Junior Johnson. But he and some buddies, he told me one time, went, just for the heck of it, they all piled in a car and drove down to Daytona to watch uh, one of the, I think it was a Firecracker 400 race down there. But anyway, he he filled out an application and, and got the job at Holman Moody, and he said he was scared to death of John Holman. He was one of those <laughs> uh, guys that just, you know, was a, a taskmaster type, and, and they work 80 and 100 hours a week, and you can confirm that with Waddell Wilson. They would work on engines, I mean, all hours of the day and night, and then they just pile in some truck and drive to Atlanta or drive to wherever the next race was. Right. And just, I mean, they just workaholics, you know, all these guys. Very but fitting they, then that Robert Yates was on that team because he definitely had that reputation too. Oh, yeah, and he would build a lot of those engines right alongside Waddell Wilson, who would know later on that they would become two of the greatest uh, engine builders of all time, and both in the NASCAR Hall of Fame later on. But uh, to to just move forward quickly here, but the, as time would have it, he built engines for Bobby Allison, and, and as it turned out, he built engines for uh, Harry Rainier, who started the, the 28 team with Buddy Baker, Benny Parsons, uh, you know, building engines for those guys. And then yeah. as, as as fate would have it, uh, he built uh, engines, of course, with Kelly Aubrey driving for that team in 84. Uh, Harry Rainier decided to sell the team to Robert Yates in, in 1989. And, and to hear Davey tell the story and Robert tell the story, they're like, I don't know if I can afford this race team. And Davey'd say, look, here's the deal. Here's your chance to buy this race team. And if you'll buy this team, from Harry Rainier, I will stay with you until the end of time. I will not go with any other race team. I'll stay until I retire. And they bought him. Robert bought the team. I don't know what he paid for it, but he bought the team. They stayed together until Davy's death. And yep. and as fate would have it, you know, Robert continued on and had several drivers won a championship. Uh, with Dale Jarrett and, of course, had Ernie Irvin and his, uh, the rest is history. But, I mean, that Davey promised him, he said, if you'll buy this race team, which happened in 89, I will stay with you two until the end of time. And Davey had already signed with, with Harry Rainier back in the days when they went in 1987 to yep. Daytona. Didn't have a sponsor. He, Davey replaced Kale. Kale moved on and all that. So, I mean, it's just kind of interesting how fate would have it that, they teamed up before Robert bought the team, and then he bought it, and then they stayed together. And we, sadly, we lost Davey. But it's just interesting how all this stuff comes together. But it all came about because a, a buddy of Robert's said, hey, Holman Moody down there at the Charlotte Air, old Charlotte Airport is looking for some people, and they pay a couple of $2, $2.50 an hour if you want to go down and build race engines. He's like, sure, I'm a NASCAR fan. I'll go see if I can put in my application and see if I can get a job. And as it turned out, it started a, a you know, whirlwind of building engines, starting a race team, winning the Daytona 500, as, and the rest is history, as they yep. say. And, uh, and just to go back, Ben, to a point you made about Robert Yates being uh, somebody who really likes to talk. Um, we both can relate to that obviously but um isn't it a bummer that we didn't get a robert yates podcast because the dude could tell stories so ben uh when i was writing for speed sport in 2014 i think it was just before i was hired there full time i did this story on robert yates and i interviewed him and there was something wrong with my tape recorder so i had to just hand write you know the interview as he's talking over the phone and he talked for like an hour and a half. It yeah. was like, at yeah. worst, the second longest interview I've ever done. Him and Gary Nelson. Maybe there's just something about 80s Cup Series uh, engine builders and and, uh, and and guys like that about how much they like to talk. Well, Robert Yates was just telling me all these awesome stories. Um, and uh, the, the thing that prevails with me from talking with him was just me telling him a story, which was funny because I probably didn't say more than 80 words, um, was... Yeah, the first race I went to, the 92 Winston at night, uh, his car won. 
it didn't get in victory lane nor did the driver because of Davey's accident but um you know I, I and I was already pretty well stuck on NASCAR by even by that point I was four but yeah, I told Robert Yates that, and he was like, it hooked you, didn't it? And he just seemed to be very amused by the fact this four-year-old kid was enthralled by this crazy finish of this night race that uh, people thought couldn't happen in the first place. And you could probably say the, the same thing, Ben, about a lot of Robert Yates' career, because when he bought that Rainier Lundy team, yeah, they'd had some success. Davey won two races as a rookie at a time when winning a race as a rookie was practically unheard of. In the 10 years preceding that, only two drivers had won races as rookies in Winston Cup. They were Dale Earnhardt and Ben. Do you know the other one? Mm-hmm. Have I stopped tell you? Well, I'm a little bit on the spot, but tell me. I oh, know yeah, that's the point, man. I got to keep you on the spot. Um, <laughs> the the other winner as a rookie, I'm pretty sure, was Ron Bouchard. Okay, yeah, eighty-one. Yep. Talladega. Yep, yep. I need you to remember the Race Hill Farms car. I just had to jog your memory. I yeah. think those are only two guys in a decade before Davey won two races as a rookie, and he didn't even run the whole schedule. You have to keep in mind, he won two races and he didn't run all the events in 87. Uh, that record stood as the most wins by a rookie for 12 years before Tony Stewart snapped it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and nobody, you know, Denny Hamlin has had had a, an incredible rookie year. Uh, so did Dale Earnhardt Jr., Jimmy Johnson, Ryan Newman. Uh, those guys all had some, some big years and, and won some races, but... Davey winning two races at a time when rookies just simply didn't do that was exceptional. And that was with Robert Yates as the general manager of Rainier Lundy Racing before he took over as the overall boss of that team. And they got that sponsorship from Texaco Havlin. And they just took off like a rocket a couple years later, particularly once they got Larry McReynolds, uh, who is one of my favorite NASCAR on Fox personalities of all time, Ben. I absolutely... I could listen to Larry McReynolds read a phone book and I would be entertained for days. Mm-hmm. Um, Larry Mack, when he when he got linked up with Davey and Robert Yates, they they made some sweet music on the racetrack in the short period of time they were all together. Um, but Robert Yates is just such an awesome guy. He was so deserving of his honor of being inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. He was inducted in 2018, uh, just a few short months uh, uh, after he'd passed away, unfortunately. So he just missed it, like you said, Ben. But uh, someone who deserved that honor without question and had a reputation, not unlike, you know, Hendrick Motorsports' reputation right now, Ben, is they win about all the races. And uh, the ones they don't win are because they're green white checkers and Kyle Larson and Chase Elliott aren't out front or because somebody didn't blow an engine without Alex Bowman running second. But they also have a reputation for winning poles and being super fast at the super speedways. And that was what Robert Yates hung his hat on the entirety of the time he owned Robert Yates racing was we are going to be fast on the super speedways. And whether it was Davey Allison driving, whether it was Ernie Irvin, Dale Jarrett, Ricky Rudd, Elliot Sadler, David Gilland, it didn't matter. They were fast on the restrictor plate tracks. You even had David Gilland coming in as a rookie um, and winning poles on the super speedways at the time in the mid-2000s. So that speaks to the fact that, one, Robert Yates always knew how to put together an engine that would just straight up go a little bit faster than everybody else. Um, But I think that doesn't do justice to how good of a tactician he was as a crew chief and how he could also... Um, I don't think there was anything Robert Yates couldn't do with that 28 car short of maybe drive it, right? Right. Oh, absolutely. I'll tell you something else that a lot of people may not realize, too. And and this is uh, 1971 at the tail end of Holman Moody. It was sort of at the time when Holman Moody was sort of at the end of what was going on there. And Robert was still there. Well, at the dark of night, so to speak, he would drive up, he would work at home in Moody, and then he would drive up to Wilkesboro at the time when Charlie Glotzbach was driving for Richard Howard, who was mm-hmm. associated with Junior Johnson. Richard Howard and, also was the uh, the general manager of Charlotte Motor Speedway for a long time. Had a right, for, yeah, for sure. And yep. so what was going on, he was turning wrenches at home in Moody in the day and actually turning wrenches on Chevy engines at night for Junior. Junior Johnson was manager of, of Richard Howard's team 
this is a year before Bobby Allison brought Coca-Cola and, and all to the, to the team in 72. Right. And so now this is a time when Chevrolet was coming back into NASCAR. Junior had run Chevrolets in 63 and set the world on fire. But from 63 to like 70, you know, Chevrolet really wasn't doing a lot in NASCAR. So, so they're like thinking, okay, who's the, who is the best? Who's the guy we can get? to come here and work on what what they dubbed school bus engines on these Chevrolets. And so here comes Robert, again, dark of night, coming up there trying to make these things work. And they ran like 14 or so races with Charlie in that 71 Chevrolet Monte Carlo. Done okay, they won at Bristol, but they weren't really clicking all that well. But now Junior got a hold of, uh, of Robert, got him up there at night working on these things. The next year, uh, you know, Holman Moody was, uh, again, sort of at the end of their tenure. Yeah. And there, here comes uh, here comes Robert working on these Chevy engines and getting those worked out. So where Bobby Allison's went, he won 10 races in 72 with, uh, you know, Robert building the engines for, for Junior and for Richard Howard. So can you imagine during the day he's building Ford engines and that, and at night, he's racing up there to, to Wilkesboro, working on those Chevy engines for Junior. And that's the, and a lot of his career in the 70s. He was working on Chevy engines and making those things run. So he could work on just about anything. But I think one of the greatest quotes of all time came from, from Robert Yates when, they, when NASCAR hired Gary Nelson and said, well, you've just eliminated 75% of your cheating because you hired Gary Nelson as your technical director. <laughs> so yeah. I just thought that was the coolest. But it's you know, true, think, though. And it's also valid. About- but the fact that, you know, Ben, you raise a great point. Not just did Robert Yates have this flexibility and this versatility and knowing how to, to build engines for separate manufacturers, but also he spent that much time helping Junior Johnson. And then in a lot of ways, I mean, you hate to say it, but, you know, Robert Yates Racing's dominance uh, in the 90s kind of you know, ushered in the end of the era for Junior Johnson racing. Yeah, kind kind of so. You're right, and I mean that you're right about about Robert Yates, and he was so versatile in anything he could work on. I mean, he worked on Bobby Allison's engines, you know, at Digard. He he also you know has something to do with you know Richard Petty's engines when Richard won the 200th uh, victory there in 1984. I mean he. He, he kind of had his fingers in a lot of things. And then for a while, he stepped away from racing to work on some synthetic uh, oils and some things like that to try, you know, because he just he, he wanted to try different things. And then, uh, you know, as time went on in the late 80s, it's when he sort of stepped back into it again and worked with Harry Renaire and got back into, you know, the team ownership thing. So. I mean, yeah, but see, the thing I loved about Robert was he, Robert was always Robert. He, he never, you know, even when the money came, the team came, success came, Daytona 500 wins, uh, championship, Robert never changed. He was always Robert, always the cool guy, always had the great quotes, always just calm as a cucumber all the time. He, I never saw him flustered at all. Other than the time, you know, Davey and I would talk about, you know, off the record and you know, feet propped up talking about, do you think Robert's going to buy the team? And I keep, and Davey would say, I keep trying to tell him he needs to buy this team. It's going to be great. He needs to do it. And it's going to be the best thing for the team. And because he knew what he had to bring, he had, maybe Robert, you know, looked towards Libby Gant. Libby was his office manager who handled everything as far as that goes, and his brother Richard Yates. Who's his twin, handle, right? Who was his twin brother, yeah. right. And they they would handle all the business side, and Robert would just kind of step in the office and say, Libby, how's things going? Oh, they're, they're great. Don't worry. Everything's fine. Richard, how are things? Don't worry. Everything's fine. And he'd go back, and which they wouldn't lie to him. They'd go back, and, and they'd handle the business side of things, and he'd go back in the engine room and start tearing down engines or whatever the case be or build engines yeah, just and keep, I mean, keep had, him at peace and just let him focus right. on what he did that was right. his, that he, was his thing yeah and he had it i mean he had a good business sense don't get me wrong but they they handled things on the business end and he handled things on the engine side and the the mechanical side the racing side and it worked it worked very very well he knew what was going on don't get me wrong but i mean 
that his forte was building engines and, and running the race team, and they had everything handled on the business end. And and Davy was kind of in the middle of that. He he was Davy was very smart when it came to to race cars and when it came to the business side. And they just had this great chemistry between the two of them, Robert and, and Davy, and 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 Larry McReynolds as well. And I've said many times, and and we've talked about this chemistry, chemistry, chemistry. You can throw as millions of dollars at something in racing, but if you don't have that chemistry between crew chief, team owner, driver, you're just throwing your money away. And they had that there. And and you got to, you know, kick Doug Yates into that equation also, because they had everything they needed right there with those, that, those four guys. And they had some incredible crew guys on that team also. And sure. they, it was just, it was just a wonderful unity uh, among some really good guys. And they didn't have an army of people like they do now. They had maybe 12 or 15 total guys on that crew that worked around the clock and building car. And this, let me say this too, real quick, Aaron. This is a time, 1992, if you remember, it was a roller coaster year where they won everything or they they blew up everything. And 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 poor old. Well, Davey, sometimes they did both. They won and they crashed. Yeah, I mean, you're right. They they tore up everything they had or either they went to victory lane and it wasn't anybody's fault i mean that's just the way it worked you remember pocono in 92 you remember the the winston you know where they crashed that I many they either crashed or they won and so they were all the time in there working on race cars and getting something ready to go out the door and i mean good grief that year was a horrible year and then of course at the final race he's in position to win the championship and he gets taken out no disrespect to ernie but he gets taken out by Ernie. And, I mean, good Lord, all year long, it was either win or crash and crash hard. Yep. And, man, and it was a crew. Sadly, of that was the story guys. of Davey's career. Yeah, it was a crew of about 12 or 15 guys, not hundreds. It was a just a small group of guys who worked around the clock keeping that thing going. And that's why there were so many tears among those guys when that, when that car went to the garage Final race of the year in Atlanta, 1992. It was over, and boom, that, that's the way it happened. But Robert Yates was the leader of it. He was a great leader, and we sure miss him today. I think about him a lot. I really do. Yeah, he's he's a special guy, and uh, it, it's worth noting that when you know all the success Robert Yates had with Davy Allison, and it was it was immense. Uh, what he had with Ernie Irvin, and what he could have had. Had Ernie not gotten injured and nearly killed at Michigan in '94, it, it's really just incredible to consider because Ben Ernie missed two thirds of the '94 season, but that car was so dominant that in just two thirds of the year, they led 1,781 laps. Mm, That's that pretty incredible. Second most laps the the team that Robert Yates's car has ever led in a season, and it was only in 20 races out of 30 races. That mm. he he did not run the last ten races due to injury, and he still let, led nearly two thousand laps. You got to think, it stands to reason he could have led close to three thousand laps had he not gotten hurt so bad in that in that crash at Michigan. Um, so it had me thinking, like, who are some other people who led a bunch of laps in the in the Cup Series? And and a year later, Jeff Gordon really kind of set the bar for uh for the modern era in a lot of ways leading 2610 laps which mm-hmm. is staggering but jimmy johnson's come close to that um in recent years but um there are a lot of things about robert yates racing for all the success they had you know 57 victories and a cup series championship 49 poles a who's who of, of stars throughout the 90s and 2000s um it's so much of it's just a story of what could have been, right? Like mm-hmm. you had, you know, Davey could have been a multi-time champion and got killed. Ernie was just in his prime, like a fast car, fast driver, had just figured it out, was learning how to take care of himself, learning how to, Ernie was just really, had, had figured out the racecraft part of it in 1994. And then that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you still had Dale Jarrett come in and win, you know, countless races. Uh, he bagged like, um, 17 wins his first few years with the team. So, I mean, uh, and a championship. Led more than 2,000 laps, 97. I mean, dude was absolutely on it. But there are just so many examples of that race team that what could have been was just amazing compared to what they accomplished. They very well could easily could have gotten 100 victories and three or four championships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And, 
you know, you're right. I, I've, I've thought about that myself, how prepared they were to, to move even further had fate maybe not stepped in. I mean, I've thought about that a lot with Ernie. You know, he stepped into a, to a car that, and, and he had, it wasn't anything, he had a tough place to step into. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, af, after, you know, after Davy's death, I mean, it was, it was so hard to accept Davy's death, but somebody... It was hard for this, me, and I was only five. Yeah, I mean, it was very hard for me because I knew Davy personally, and I'm honored to say that. But I mean, it was hard. No matter who stepped into that race car, it was going to be tough. It was the same thing with uh, Kevin Harvick stepping into what became the 29 car after Dale Earnhardt's passing. I mean, whoever stepped into that car, it was going to be tough. And Ernie took some grief over take, leaving the four car and going into the 28 car. Because it didn't matter who stepped into it, it's going to be hard to do. And and you know, I remember I think back on uh, when he went to the Charlotte Motor Speedway in October. Ernie did, and he just blistered the place. I don't remember how many laps he led, but I remember it was one of those days like Truex had recently, where he led all but gosh, twenty laps or something. Oh, Humpy wasn't happy with Ernie Irvin a couple no. times in the nineties. He, uh, <laughs> I mean, he, he, just, he practically wanted to shoot his tire out because he was so dominant. You just weren't yeah. going to catch him. I feel I, like I just, there was one race, Ben, probably one you're talking about, where I swear I think Ernie could have blown a tire with two laps to go and still won comfortably. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I remember another race in '94. It was the Brickyard, and late, late, late in the race. It came down to Ernie and Jeff Gordon, and Ernie just simply cut a right front. Had that not happened, I don't know that Jeff Gordon may have won that race. Not chance. Because... No, Ernie, Ernie had it. Ernie or Jeff Bodine in the seven car from yeah. Alan Kowicki's notes, uh, per our, our friend Deb Williams, I believe, told me that, that Alan had spent so much time trying to build a great car for Indianapolis, but Jeff used the notes after Alan's passing and, and really could have won the race that he and his brother Brett knocked tangled. After that, yeah. I was like, all right, Ernie's definitely going to win this. And it was only a flat tire that that kept him from doing it. Um, but, yeah, you are you are right, Ben. Fall 93, Charlotte Motor Speedway, Ernie Irvin, like, decent performance. He was not out front for six laps, but he was out front for 328 laps. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember it being very dominant performance. And he I didn't even that. win the poll. Yeah. He did not win the poll. Jeff Gordon won the poll. Um, led the first lap, or didn't even lead the first lap. Uh, he led one lap, and then Ernie kind of took over like Truex did in 2016, and it was Sia, and he, uh, yeah, I mean, it, to lead 328 of 334 laps in a race is, I mean, I don't even know, how, how do you describe that? Like, that car mm. that Robert Yates, I mean, you know, they used to call them the Yates Rockets. I always loved that nickname. They called them the Yates Rockets because those cars were so freaking fast. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of truth to that statement because um, I think if you know if cautions would have gone their way, uh, I'm I'm not sure that that I think he could have led every lap that race. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's how dominant those those 28 Fords were. And see, that's why Davey walked around with a big smile on his face all the time because he knew what he had under the hood of those cars. He knew how talented Robert was as far as building those those engines and see Robert liked other than Doug. I mean, you know, Robert being a team owner, he could have very easily passed that along to, to some of his engine guys, but you know, some, uh, there's a guy that comes to mind. His name is Nick Ramey. Nick was a really, and still is a really great engine builder. He still works with Doug Yates over at Roush Yates engines. Mm -hmm. He was a great engine builder. Like I say, still is Doug also uh, picked up a lot of, great pointers from robert he would be right over his shoulder showing him all kinds of things to do with engines so he had a great bench if you will over there at robert yates racing he was showing them but a lot of times robert just that was his hobby he liked to just work late at night and like he did in the home and moody days where he would just work on engines and that was kind of his you know peaceful place where he didn't mind people working on engines and stuff, but he he enjoyed building engines even as a team owner, and uh, you know so that's where a lot of that horsepower came from. And some things he shared, some things he didn't. But you knew for a fact when you went to Daytona every year, if if the 28 car didn't win the pole, it was most likely going to be on the outside of the front row. I mean, it was just yeah, that like was Hendrick the way, now. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was just the way, the way it was. And, you know, he just, he was, and he, that's another thing he could tell you, you'd sit down and ask him some stuff. And, and I loved working on the book with Robert, but like you, it was, you know, and I, I didn't want to take any of this for granted, but I mean, you could ask him something really simple and 35 minutes later, he'd back, he'd say, now what was it you asked me? That <laughs> I love that though, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Like you don't get that enough, you know? No, no. And, but see, he would tell me things about engine performance and, and some stuff that would float way over my head. And I had no clue what he was yep. talking about. And it was okay for him to tell me because he knew I couldn't do anything with it. And so, but he was, it was so almost like a game because he did that to me too. He would talk, yeah, was, he would go in depth about things that he knew I wasn't going to write about. No. Um, but it was almost like, uh, I'm going to tell you how much I know by explaining to you this thing that's very elementary to me, but may as well be Mandarin Chinese to you. Right. And see, I get that from my son, Aaron, who's an engineer at ECR. Yeah. And then the first 20 seconds, 15 seconds, I'm lost and he smiles and we go on. And because I don't have a clue <laughs> what he's talking about. Yeah. And, and but, honestly, you know, Ben, the thing about Yates, we've talked about how talkative he is. Yeah. I mean, you covered all these people in the 80s and 90s. Certainly your top five most talkative people. Like if you had, if you needed a story, let's say oh, you're walking around the pits and you needed a story. You needed to talk to somebody to give you a good quote. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Robert Yates is in the top five. Yeah. It goes without saying Daryl Walter is in the top yeah. five. Who you got to go with. Who else would be in it? You'd have to go with Rusty. Okay. Yeah, I R- see that. I could definitely Rus- see that. Yeah, yeah. Rusty was would give you some great quotes. Um, Kyle Petty? What, where would yeah, Kyle figure def- in there? No, no, definitely Kyle Petty. Kyle is is one of the great people to get quotes from of all time. I mean, he is really, really good with, with coming up with that really cool quote yeah. that really put a great ending on a story. Kyle's That's also great. a hell of a storyteller. Yeah, for sure. Um, so who's your fifth? Uh, is that four or five? Um, I, I was always better at English than math, but I'm pretty sure we got four because we got Daryl Walter, we got Robert <laughs> yeah. Yates, we got Rusty Wallace, we got Kyle Petty. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, well, let me think about that for This can be I, 80s or 90s, okay. anytime. I mean, I got to go with BA. I got to go with Bobby Allison because Bobby has told me some incredibly cool stories um, over the years that yeah. I, I got to go with BA. I mean, you know, you could almost go with the top 10 here because. Um, I mean, I have to think about a few of these, but uh, yeah, that, that definitely be a because he's got some, he's got some really good stories. And another driver who had a little bit of success in a number twenty eight as well. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's tougher, I think, now. Uh, if we flash forward to the present, it's tougher now, I think, to to come up with that list of guys who can be a go to. You know, yeah. there's not. There's not a Rusty Wallace, um, <laughs> although there is there is a decent comparison. I I will say that uh, that Kurt that Brad Keselowski driving a paint scheme yeah. like Rusty Wallace is several years ago at Bristol was so appropriate because um, Rusty and Brad not only you know are known for driving a number two Miller Lite car for Roger Penske they they share more than that in common. Uh, personality-wise, I, I think, and it, it's always, it never ceases to amuse me. But, I mean, if you do a deeper dive, Ben, after that, it's kind of tough, I feel like, you know? Um, well, for me, get... it was, uh, Dale Jr. was always great. I could do a sidebar about Dale Jr. and talk to him about things, and he would give me great stuff. Jimmy Johnson's always great. Um, but in terms of people that, like, might give you a nugget of information or a quote that they might not give others for me, that was probably Dale jr. Again. And then, um, I think we just were able to relate well to each other. And then, yeah, yeah. And you got a few others. Joey Logano has always been excellent. I've said that many times well, before. I, I would have to go with a guy that has present day that I, I would really enjoy talking to. If you can get him to talking about it is true X. Yeah. Just, I mean, Martin, you know, if you get him a little bit away from the racetrack and talking fishing and hunting and just fun stuff, Martin's a great interview. He I always really wanted is. to ask Martin who he was named for. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. I, you know, I would love, I, I mean, I'd love to know if, 
I'll tell you another one that I really enjoyed talking to, but you had to get him at the right mood. And you, and I had some fun interviews with him away from the racetrack. Stu- not away from the track, but stuff away from the track. Yeah. Straight up, Dale Earnhardt. Yeah. If you could get him away from talking about race engines and cars and stuff and get him away from that, he was a fun interview. And I had about three or four of those that I did one in 1995 for NASCAR Illustrated that we talked, I said, Dale, I want to talk about everything but racing. I don't want to talk about anything. I bet he but- lit up too. He did. And it was, I said, I want to talk about Kannapolis. I want to talk about your mom and dad. I want to talk about growing up on V8 sedan streets. I want to talk about racing bicycles. I want to talk about stuff like that. And he said, oh man, yeah. And we talked about sneaking in the house and hitting the right boards, going up the steps so his parents wouldn't catch him coming in late, driving his Nova in, hitting the right spots in the driveway so his car wouldn't squeak or hit the frame on the on the ground. That's dedication. I mean, you know, I mean, it was fun. I yeah. enjoyed talking to him and talking about going fishing with Neil Bonnet. Um, it was I feel like fun. Neil would have been a good quote, too. For, for Oh, gosh, And yeah. we've talked about him and um, his, his weird stories that he told you once, but I feel like yeah. he would have been up there. Um, Yes, for Neil me, good. for me to get a little more modern, aside from Dale Jr. and Jimmy Johnson, Joey Logano, um, I feel like I feel like I could and I have before talked for hours with Jeffrey Earnhardt. Uh, Jeffrey and I hit it off really, really well. Um, Jeffrey Jeffrey's another one you you get him talking about racing, or you can talk about you know other stuff for an hour, hour and a half, uh, just easy mm-hmm. to talk to. And and I think there's some guys out there who are like that, but. The challenge that journalists have now, I think, Ben, versus what you faced 30 years ago is that um, they're taught not to open up. You know, there, yeah. there's that, the, the, the barrier between media and driver is stronger than it's ever been. Some of that's by design. Some of it's by circumstance. Some of it's just because personalities have changed. The way people ride has changed, definitely. People, yeah. you know, ride, drivers have more of a concern that, like, is this guy asking me this question because he's doing a hatchet job on me or like, why exactly are we doing this? Um, right. Uh, and sadly, and I like I understand that to an extent. Yeah. And I don't think that, and I don't say this, I'm trying not to be disrespectful to say this, but I don't think this, the guys today have the as colorful of stories as the guys that did 30 years or 40 years ago. I don't really don't, I don't think they have them. Yeah. And, because... and I think the ones who do, they're just different, you know, like Kyle Larson's got great stories from racing on dirt, but it, it's different than Dale Earnhardt's stories of living paycheck to paycheck at the racetrack, right. having to wreck exactly. the guy in third to have grocery money. It's just yeah. a different time. Doesn't mean right. it's better or worse. It's just different. And so when you write a story about them or you're doing a podcast with them, whatever it is, you have to kind of take a different angle. And there's, you know, there's some difficulty in that from the person doing the interview. And certainly it's not any easier for the, the driver being interviewed because, you know, maybe they don't have that kind of story and, and you gotta, you gotta go a different way or you just, I don't know, Ben, ask them to make something up. That's what you ought to <laughs> well, do sometime. Just ask well, them, I mean, Kyle, tell me a story that never happened and see where I go with that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, here's the difference. Okay, Kyle Petty, for instance, may have talked to you about having a paper route where today a Kyle Larson or a Justin Haley wouldn't have a paper route because there may not be a newspaper to have a paper route with. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's a valid so, point. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, here's here's a good story that I thought was one of the greatest quotes ever, and it came from a guy, and a lot of today's new people may not know this name. I just finished a story for Speed Sport on this guy, and I had a lot of respect for him. And you'll know the name, J.D. McDuffie. Oh, yeah. And J.D. McDuffie passed away in a crash in August of 1991 at Watkins Glen. And he I was, remember listening to that race on the radio as it was. Yeah. I was three, and somehow I still have a recollection of that when it happened. Yeah, and he, he sadly passed away on about the fifth lap of the Watkins Glen race. And You know, and his wife guy, passed away recently, too. I did see that, yeah. yeah, and and Jimmy Means, another driver who's in the Xfinity series, who has a team now, uh, was in that crash also. But but JD sadly lost his life in the crash. But when I was probably about well, this is 1985, and I talked to JD at Richmond, Virginia, and I walked up to JD, 
And I said, you know, we just made a conversation. I said, JD, you know, and back, you know, let me, let me preface it by saying this. This is open face helmets. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. J- JD was a back marker driver uh, from Sanford, North Carolina, drove number 70, was his team. And he did not have the top quality. He ran, let me say this respectfully. He ran used parts, but they were good parts. He got yeah. them from Junior Johnson. He got them from various other teams. But they were not top, top type parts, but they were good parts. Right. Okay, so he had the open face helmet, and he had five cigars in his pocket. Great quote. And I said, J.D., what's the story behind the five cigars? And he said, well, and he sort of had an Eastern North Carolina accent. He said, well, let me tell you, he said, I, I like to chew on a cigar, and I have one every 100 miles. And he said, if I get to the fifth cigar, I've had a good day. And I thought, that is the coolest quote I've ever heard. <laughs> he could have made that up five minutes beforehand, and it'd still be fantastic. Yeah, I know, but he really did say that to me, and I thought that is the coolest because he know he was one of the guys he would never win, and he knew he wasn't going to win. Right, but he was, he was there to just to try to finish the race. He was there to finish the race, and he was trying to outdo all the other independent drivers. When I say independent, the guys who didn't get factory support from Ford or Dodge or Chevy, the Ronnie but, Thomases, right, the Jimmy Meanses. Yeah. And so, but it was the coolest. He said, if I get to the fifth cigar, I've had a really good day. And I thought that is the coolest quote of a, of a guy ever. Well, sadly, he passed away in August of 91 after having this crash. And so I just remembered that quote when I wrote the story for Speed Sport. And I thought I, that just came to mind how I asked him, what's because I wanted to know what's the story behind the cigars? And so, and he did have a cigar sponsorship. I don't know if they paid him in cigars or paid him in money, but, you know, he always, and he never lit the cigar in the car, of course. He just chewed on the cigar and he said, I'd had a cigar every hundred miles. And when I got to that hundred mile mark, I'd toss it out the window and grab another cigar out of my pocket. Well, so between him and and Dick Trickle smoke, have a cut in a hole in his helmet to smoke cigarettes under caution. You really yeah. got to think NASCAR just kind of hit the nail on the head by getting a tobacco sponsor. Absolutely. But hey, now this is true. Now, some fans may not know this. I'm, I'm going off the tracks here a little bit. David Pearson, three-time champion, actually had a cigarette lighter put in his car with the Wood Brothers so he could smoke cigars or, I mean, smoke cigarettes during cautions. That is a fact. So Dick Trickle and, wasn't the first one to do that. No, no, I did he wasn't not know the first that. one to do that. No, David Pearson actually had one. You could ask Eddie Eddie Wood or Leonard Wood, and they actually had one installed in his car. That was one of his, uh, you know, wish list. If I drive for you, I got to have a cigarette lighter in my car. So if you look in the car, it's in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. If you could get close to it and look into it, the 21 Perlator Mercury that he drove in 72 and 73 actually has a cigarette lighter in the car. So there you go. Can't beat it, man. There's your track fact for the day. I don't know who I would vote most likely to want a cigarette lighter in their car now. I'm not sure anybody. Um, <laughs> Probably very safe. Yeah, but I mean, God, you know, you think about, you know, two guys smoking cigarettes under caution and one guy chewing cigars. The Winston Cup sponsorship couldn't have been more appropriate, could it? Oh, no, man. I mean, I know anybody that smoked cig- cigarettes back in the day that were race drivers. They were, like, turning cartwheels. And I'm sure that they probably walked out of there with cases of cigarettes, you know, thanks to RJR. But, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they had some kind of deal on the side. But, uh, but yeah, Pearson, Pearson did it every, every race. And there were times that after he won races, he'd have a cigarette before he went to victory lane. So... That was a that was a Pearson thing. Not ever, not all drivers did it, but I know Pearson did it. I'm sure Jeff Gordon did it too. Um, <laughs> but hey, but there was a time where Jeff Gordon did have a. This is ironic. After RJR left, he did have a Nicorette. That's true. That's true. He drove so a Nicorette. Drove that uh, green and yellow Nicorette car a little bit. Um, we went from advertising smoking to advertising quitting smoking. There you go. So less lucrative. Probably healthier though. Definitely Maybe, healthier. Absolutely. Not even, not even probably. Absolutely healthier. Yeah, how'd um, we get off on this? I don't know. This <laughs> happens, man. Um yeah. but you know, I, I did kind of want to go back to um, you know, people who who, who drove the twenty eight car. We've given a lot of people their due and they deserve it. Dale Jarrett, you know, in addition to Ernie, in addition to Davey, in addition to Bobby, in addition to Kale. We'll talk about Kale in another episode coming up soon. Um but, you know, pound for pound, I said this at, at the top of the episode, Ben, 
pound for pound, my vote for I, I think the the car number with the murderer's row of talents probably twenty eight over every, over any other car. Give me take it three, even forty three. Forty three had most of the successful one driver, but you look at the people who drove that twenty eight car. Um, I don't think there's another number in NASCAR that, that can really hold a candle to, right. to just how many legends Ricky Rudd drove in it. Ricky Rudd won in it. Um, there's just, you know, there's so many people who, you know, were so successful in those cars. Um, it just makes me wonder, maybe the 28 was lucky. And it's so wild to me that there hasn't been a 28 car in a NASCAR Cup Series race in, well, more than a decade now. Mm-hmm. Um, well... Well, another thing I want to want to point out too. I mean, you got to go all the way back to the '60s. Fred Lorenzen drove the number 28 to yep. to 26 victories, and and when he would sign his cards in the 1980 or 1990s, 90, 91, if he came to the racetrack, he would write Fred Lorenzen old number 28 <laughs> because because the 28 was so prominent in the early 90s. And sure. He, Wanted to make sure, but yeah, I mean, he was he was setting the world on fire in the '60s. Uh, the Golden Boy, Fred Lorenzen, number yep. 28. I mean, he was the man in a uh, Fred Lorenzen uh, or the uh, Holman Moody, number 28. Which is as Cale Yarbrough called him, Holman and Moody's. So yeah, had, Holman yeah, and Moody's. Yeah, how he pronounced and, him to me one time. And ironically, guess he was building, helping to build engines for the Fred Lorenzen car. It was Robert Gates. So Can't there you it. go. Can't, Can't beat, beat it. it, brother. So. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, all right, we again, I mean, there's so many people that drove this car and were so good, you know, try not to leave anybody out, but we, I'm not going to sell the Grey Ghost short because no. one of the most famous times of anybody driving the 28 car was that Regal Ride number 28 that Buddy Baker piloted to his only Daytona 500 victory in 1980. Silver and black, um, you know, people... People like to think the first great silver and black NASCAR Cup Series car was Dale Earnhardt. And I mean, there's a great reason to believe that, but it was Buddy Baker. That car mm-hmm. was just absolutely bad at the bone. Um, I thought it was so cool when Dale Jr., not once, but twice in Dale Jr.'s career, he brought that paint scheme back. Uh, and which is, you know, obviously speaks to his, his appreciation for history and the sport, which I believe has been documented once or twice. Yes, and you and you know what, Aaron? I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I got to say this: the twenty-eight car that Buddy Baker drove, the thing was so bad, fast, and it was gray and black, and it meshed with the track so badly that the drivers went to NASCAR and said, "You got to put some kind of orange or fluorescent something on the front of the car because it's scaring us to death." We look in the in the rearview mirror of the car of our car, and suddenly we see that thing on our rear bumper, and we didn't know it was there. So that's and why so, it was the gray ghost. That was that's how yeah, it got its exactly. Name. Okay. And they had to put the fluorescent uh, stripes under the headlight buckets yeah. in the front of the car because it was so they couldn't see it and they actually couldn't see it in the mirrors <laughs> and so that's a true story and so they had to put something orange or something fluorescent on yeah. the front of the car i didn't know that so, and they did it on the number too even if you look at the number it's it's chrome but on the, the trim it's it's a fluorescent orange mm-hmm. i didn't know yeah, that and that's exactly why because the thing was so bad fast and because of waddell wilson and da-da, robert yates they yep. built that engine so fast because they couldn't, the drivers said they'd look in their mirrors and say, holy crap, where did that come from? And it would be right on their back bumpers. And it meshed with the, the track and the, you know, the, it was gray. The track was gray. They couldn't see it. And so they had, they went to NASCAR and said, you got to do something because this thing's scaring us to death. And so it was like <laughs> Jaws, actually yeah. Jaws coming out of the water. And they had to do something. That's, that's a true story. Yeah. That, so I mean, go. I understand. And, and, you know, um, as just it's one of the coolest stories in NASCAR, that race car. It, it is mm-hmm. really fascinating. It was the very end, Ben, of the the larger wheelbase cars that look kind of like land yachts from a, mm-hmm. a close distance. Um, but those cars were super fast, and Buddy Baker was an absolute badass. So appropriate that he did win that race, and and Buddy was such an excellent super speedway racer, um, truly one of the best in the seventies and eighties. Um, and, and won races for several different car owners. Bud Moore um, ran for some for Petty Enterprises, one for the Wood Brothers as well. Um, but, you know, the, there's not a lot of cars in NASCAR that I feel like haven't gotten their due, but the Grey Ghost is one of them for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Grey Ghost was 
phenomenal race car and it's still a record i think 177 point something something miles an hour i don't have it in front of me but the fastest daytona 500 ever and i think that record still stands with buddy baker that year 1980 and you know he had tried and tried so like earnhardt Sure. To to win the five had awful luck, but even he's so good at luck. it though. Yeah, yeah. But the gray ghost carried him to victory, and I just remember him finally saying, "I got it, I got it, I got it." Same thing with Earnhardt, and yeah. And ironically, uh, it was gray and black, just like uh, you know, or and his was silver and black. But still, years and years, twenty years or something, trying to win the five hundred, they finally got it with that car. But yeah, that was a little spooky to some of those drivers. They'd see that thing come up in their rearview mirror and just didn't know it was there. And suddenly look up and, holy cow, that thing is on top of me. And they finally said, we got to do something because it scared us to death out there. And with all that horsepower and, and it just, you know, you know how when you look in your rearview mirror on the interstate, you don't see anything. And suddenly you look up and there is something in your rearview mirror. It happened to me a day job at home from work. As I mean, this kind of kind of spooks you a little bit. Sure. And that's, Especially when you can't see it and it blends into the pavement. Because at that time, uh, Daytona's, the asphalt, you know, kind of matched the color. And, and Ben, yeah. I don't know if you remember this or not. You may. Humpy Wheeler often said he didn't like... He, he was not a fan of Dale Earnhardt's black Goodrich car or Rusty Wallace's black Miller Genuine Draft car because he always said, I wouldn't want to paint my race car black because it blends into the racetrack too much. Mm-hmm. I, um, don't remember, I don't remember that, but I'm sure that sounds like something Humpy would say. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, uh, there's not a lot Humpy said it was wrong, so, you know, you, you got you to gotta take that with, a, with an abundance of, of accepting mm-hmm. its validity because sure. Humpy's an absolute genius. Um, yeah. But... We're going to go away from geniuses for a second because we're going to talk about my opinions and your opinions, and we're not geniuses, but we like nope. to play them on a podcast. Sure. Um, so, Ben, you know, we've talked about all these guys and their success in, in the Cup Series, in the 28 car, winning a bunch of races, in some cases winning championships, like Dale Jarrett after he left the 28 car. Um, but, you know, we're getting into playoff season in NASCAR. Um I'll be honest, I kind of wish it still had the name The Chase, and if Chase Elliott went by Bill Elliott Jr., I kind of think it still would be The Chase, but maybe not. Regardless, if we had the playoffs, if there was like a playoff, you know, not even elimination style, but like a top 12, you know, reset it over the last 10 races like it was from 04 to 13, um, uh, who do you think would have really benefited from that if, if, if we... If we had that kind of a format throughout NASCAR's history, who are some people you think would have probably won more championships, and who are some people who you think might have struggled a little bit more? Well, mm, because I think one of them who would have probably benefited is Kale Yarborough. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could see that. Uh, you know, Kale was one of those guys that was not as good as some drivers as far as knowing what was going on inside the race car in the last 10 laps when it started to bump and grind yeah but he was like caution to the wind i'm just going to drive it till it breaks yeah if kale yarborough on a green white checker would have been a patch of hell yeah and same with buddy baker buddy had buddy you know maybe not push the throttle to try to push it through the floorboard as much as he did yeah and tried to plan the last 20 laps a little better, he would have won a lot more races. But he was the kind of guy that there's only two speeds for this thing is stopped and wide open. And that was Buddy Baker's style. And that's what so, we loved about him, man. That, that's, yeah, that's a exactly. fantastic fact. It, it, it speaks to, I, and, and it makes me wonder, Ben, you know, there are not a lot of drivers now who have that kind of approach. And, um, you know, you can think, Maybe they don't often think that way because in the 70s and 80s, reliability was such a concern. Some guys took the stance of, I'm going to try and take care of my race car. And other guys were like, well, hell, if it's probably going to break on lap 80, then let's be leading on lap 80. Right. Um, and, and, and one of those that took the approach to let's be careful and let's see what happens is absolutely unequivocally David Pearson because yeah. David had this idea that even he, even the Wood Brothers to tell you, Lynn and Eddie and Leonard, all three, we had no clue what he was thinking, and he never would tell us. And we'd radio to him in these antiquated radio systems we had. Well, how's it doing? Oh, it's fine. Well, what do you need? Well, uh, I'm fine. I don't. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll let you. He would yeah. never tell him anything. But he was 
holy terror in the last 50 laps. And that's what he would do in an era when you could hold back. Today, you can't really do that. But in sure. that era, he could hold back to 10th or 12th. And then when it came down to the last 30, 40 laps, he would just he would save his equipment. Well, you can't really do that kind of thing now. But to answer your question, I think David maybe would have uh, probably benefited a little bit more. You think? Uh, okay. I think, yeah, but 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 talking about Kale, talking about Buddy, it, it's hard to say in a way because it depends on driving style a lot. All right, so um, what about this one? Another guy, we talked about Buddy taking forever to win a 500. How about we talk a guy who took forever to win a championship, Bobby Allison. If they had the playoff system in place in the 70s, do you think Bobby could have won a championship? Because obviously anybody can go back and look at the points and how it would have shaken out, but that doesn't paint a full picture because the strategies would be different. You would bring yeah. different cars to track you, your approach changes. So, you know, it, do you think Ben could Bobby have won a championship before not before the early eighties, if there was a playoff format? Cause I think he could have honestly. Yeah, I, I think maybe so. I mean, here's the difference. Let me, let me compare kale. Let me see if I can do this. Let me compare kale to Bobby. I don't mean any disrespect to kale at all when I say this, but he's the kind of person that he could get everything out of a race car, but he couldn't define what was wrong with it. Okay. Where Bobby could take a car apart and put a car back together. And he, if he could hear what was going on in a race car, he could define it to a crew chief. I don't know that Kale could do that, but Kale could just drive the snot out of a race car and get the most out of a car. Bobby could too, but he could define what was going on. Does that make sense? Sometimes it helps the teams. Yeah. We got to save some of this kale conversation. Cause I want to talk about kale in episode 29 too. Cause that is a number he used when he retired. Right. Winston cup in 88. But yeah, yeah. I but, think it, it's a valid, it's a valid thought. And, and Bobby's um, and, and we've talked about this a lot, but Bobby's genius from behind the wheel, you could really argue is surpassed by his genius for understanding the analytics of a race car and really kind of being a driver engineer at a time when such a thing just didn't exist. Right. Bobby, and I say this, I mean, I'm serious as I can be about this. Bobby could drive a washing machine if it had wheels and a steering wheel. Yeah. The man, the man absolutely could drive anything. Matter of fact, he could get into some type of sports car or, or a open wheel car or, a anything else other than a stock car and outperform the driver who had his name on the roof line. That's a fact. Yeah. And he made some drivers mad because he would get in the car and run it five, six seconds faster than the guy who actually was getting a paycheck from the car. So I know that to be a fact. And so back to your original question, if they had a playoff system, uh, I'm not sure how the drivers would, would take to a playoff system in that era because the only thing they knew was push the throttle to the car broke. I, I don't yeah. know how to define, I'm trying to define that question in that era. Cause I don't know, I don't know how they would, I don't know if they would accept it or not. I'm really, I mean, the cars were so different at the time. Sure. The driver's mentalities were so different at the time. I don't, that's a really, really good question to answer because I, I, I mean, it's hard to compare the, even the cars to what we have today because they were so incredibly different, cubic inch wise, wheelbase wise, uh, setup wise. Seats were different. Everything about the cars were so different. I'm not sure. And, I, and here's the question I pose: Could a driver from 1975 get in a car today and drive it? which a lot of them said they couldn't. I heard Pearson say one time, there's no way he could get in a car from before his passing. There's no way he could get, get in a car at that time before he passed away and drive it. And there's drivers that were at that time said they couldn't get in a car from the seventies and drive it. So interesting. I think some so of those guys different. could, I think that Richard Petty, David Pearson, I, I don't think there's a time Dale Earnhardt couldn't have gotten in a car and been fast. That's my opinion. Any, any type of race car, NASCAR, I think if you threw any kind of challenge at some of those guys, it might take them a little bit of time to get up to speed. But when they were, they would be absolutely on the limit. And but that's, I, I don't. But it's so subjective. You just never really yeah, know. It is. But I don't. I don't. I do recall, and I don't think I'm making this up. I do recall 
Earnhardt saying once that I don't think he, I believe he said that he couldn't, didn't think he could drive a car with all the, the seat, the way, you know, with the padding or, I don't know if I'm, if I'm right about saying that or not. It seemed like, I don't know if he said it or someone else said it, speculating could he drive a car, you know, with all the padding that you have around their heads and stuff like that. He wasn't a fan of Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.